Welcome to the Cheeky Investor Podcast. This week, we are implementing our motto of success leaves clues, and we're going to have a deep dive into investors that have beaten the market. It's one of those taboo phrases that we shouldn't say because apparently no one can beat the market. The market's always efficient, and you shouldn't even try and bother. At least that's uh, the general message we hear all the time, Gareth, but these guys seem to, uh, seem to have done something a little different. Yeah, I, don't, I know it's interesting, isn't it? There's a couple of people out there, like always in industries, you seem to be able to, um, I don't know, is, is it luck? They seem to, to pick the right things at the right time. Um, just anecdotally, I've worked in the property sector in London for quite a few years, and there was the um, CEO of a property company there whose history and background is incredibly interesting. He was um, given up by his parents and raised by gypsies. <laughs> in a caravan in in you know somewhere outside London, really interesting history. He ended up marrying a prostitute, didn't realise she was a prostitute, and then ended up divorcing her. Um, but has had this incredibly sort of interesting life. But um, yeah, one of the things people said, you know, he had this sixth sense. He managed to get out of the property market in the 1990 crash and got all his money out, kept all his money, bought loads of really cheap places, and built them up. Um, and did the same with the the, the GFC as well. That uh, you know, I remember that they basically had this massive cash reserve. So yeah, you know, is there are people that can do it? Are these people lucky? Do they have skills? I, I, is I the think system we've got, to put a using? we've got to put a disclaimer out there now because we said success leaves clues only in the financial sense. There's no need to go get prostitutes to try and up your investing returns or... That was where I was going with this. Kind of I, th- I think you have to live um, like these people. You have to be <laughs> taken in by gypsies. Um, <laughs> it's the only way you're ever going to be not. successful. Uh, you know, <laughs> look, look, it worked for, it worked for, uh, for Tony Pidgeley um, of Barty Holmes. <laughs> I'm sure it worked for you, mate, all right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll inform the boy. Um, um, so yeah, it, 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 there are people, and I, and I do think it's a bit of luck, but I, I do think there's also there is there is clues absolutely in how they operate um, in some very basic and simple ways. You know, I think um, we're going to go through a couple of the big names, and it's interesting. You know, we were just chatting before this this podcast. You know, will we talk about the world's greatest investors, or you know, the, the investors that have beaten the market? And they're, they're probably one of the same thing, but. Um, you know, the couple of names are, are should be household names to a lot of you, um, but it's it's interesting. I, I do think you'll begin to see that there's pretty similar strategies and systems, or at least there is systems that they, they just stick by, um, which is something we're all guilty of not doing at times. Um, so there is clues in, in how they're doing it. But the question is, you know, is there some level of luck in there as well? And um, I suppose let's chat through and see what we, we discover. See what we can find out. Mm. So, do you want to, um, yeah, dive in. Um, yeah, let's just go. Let's go one for one. Have you, have you, who you got in mind? Well, okay, I'll probably start um, with one of the most successful uh, investors of all time, Peter Lynch, um, fund manager of Magellan. I think Magellan Fund. Um, so he's been going since. Well, he took over this fund in the seventies. Um, and he retired successfully at age 46 with a, a huge um, portfolio, a huge amount of money that he'd made. So I think his, his style was very much about um, looking at what was happening in the economy at the time. Um, you know, but but he, he, you know, he was always about um, sort of stressing that you should be able to understand what you own. So, you know, I, I, and that's, that point is worth remembering because it's something that comes up with other investors. It's this idea that you really need to understand what you're investing in because 
Phil, you've said it before, what you're investing in isn't stocks. It's not a thing on the screen. You're actually investing in a company. You're, you're, you're part owning a company. So you need to understand um, what that company is actually um, doing and how they operate in order to, to invest sort of successfully. Um, I think his, his stats, um, so the fund that he managed, the Magellan, Magellan Fund, however you want to say it, um, it had annualized returns of 29.2% um, during the time that he was running it. Um, which was about twice what the S&P 500 was doing at, at that period. So pretty successful guy. Um, so, you know, if we look at what his style was, like I said, his style was very much looking at that, the, the, what was happening in the, in, in the market at the time. Um, and in reading, in reading the economic situation and adapting to that. So he was actually quite good at, at adapting. And I think he started as a sort of a textiles and metals analyst. Um, and sort of built up from there. So he he really started in a kind of a, at the kind of ground level in a way and, and really had to learn a lot about about understanding companies and businesses because in textiles and metals, it's, it's a lot and down. So, you know, I think that that, that in a way gave him the, the very good background and knowledge to be able to then go on and develop a fund and, and get the returns um, that, that he was able to get. Um, so from your perspective, Phil, is he a good guy? Do you like him? I know you've spoken about him before. Oh, absolutely. One of my favourites. Um, one Up on Wall Street. It's one of my favourite books ever. Uh, oh, yeah. One of the concepts I teach is um, to kind of invest by shopping or invest by walking around. And it's, it's just paying attention when you're in shopping centres um, about what's, what's happening, what's on the shelves, what's picking up in popularity, what, what shops are popping up in every Westfield in Australia, for example, or what shops are closing down because that on the ground information is it's ahead of the game, you know, for the process to work, you know, if a company's, um, you know, got a decrease in sales, well, before that happens, there's got to be less customers in the store. So if you're constantly just, you know, paying attention when you're at the uh, shopping center and there's less customers in shoe shops, for example, Mm. that information is, is immediate you can go exit your stocks or whatever they are or go short on that industry because by the time the sales go through the head office the head office goes through to corporate accounting accounting report in the quarter you know you could be one two three months ahead of everyone else before the for the decrease kind of happens so he's mm. really good at making that um you know that really simple kind of connection for investing and that's yeah. where that comes up from like one up on Wall Street that they don't they don't know much better than anyone else like they're all taught to read the same charts and earnings reports and everything else but as an individual you can do simple stuff like that which is just phenomenal lesson to learn 100 it's a it's a it's he's one of these guys that absolutely has opened the world to a lot of investors it's interesting you talk about uh, one up on Wall Street I mean that was published in 1989 and that still I think would be regarded as being one of the you know investing books st still out there now and that you know, is in comparison to lots of the things that have, that have been published so that's the longevity of that book i think just proves how successful it is and, and you're absolutely right those um sort of simple strategies and simple ideas that he puts forward um, and obviously has practiced throughout his career has meant he's been able to adapt and that's probably the big thing for me with his style, it's been about being able to adapt to what's happening. And he can do that because he's able to pick up on what's happening in a business or, or in a sector. So he's able to jump and move around. You know, he's not 
um, sort of sticking to some idea of where things should be. He's actually looking at what's happening on the ground. And the other thing that he he brought forward, Phil, or or well, he's sort of credited with coming up with the the price to earnings growth ratio. Um, and I don't know if he actually did, but um, you know that's something that's used by investors everywhere to help them figure out whether stock is is expensive or or, or not expensive or, or cheap and um, given its growth potential so you know this is a guy that um not only sort of walked the walk but not only talked the talk but walked the walk he was able to actually create this new way of looking at companies and in a way quite a again a kind of a, a simple way to consider um whether a company is worth investing in and again this is something that the average investor, everyday investor, or you know, small-scale investing business can use. They can use this model to help figure out if, if there's somewhere worth investing in. So I, I really like, I really like his style. He comes across as someone that's a bit more of the people, I suppose, because some of the people on this list, they're you know, they're interested in another world. They're you know, they're they're sort of up there, you know, big billionaires sort of doing their own thing. But I have to say, I I definitely like the fact that his 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 analysis. And the method is analysis is something that anybody can do um, without having to have a degree from Harvard or loads of expensive um, things. And look, you know, that reflects how how we teach, how you know, cheeky investor. Where that's what we're about is giving people that knowledge and that power to be able to go out and invest. And you don't need to spend a thousand dollars a month in software to do that. You can actually just use your brain. So yeah, he's definitely okay. for me would be would be one of the one of the great ones on. I think um I think we have the same birthday actually. Memory, Peter Lynch. Oh God! Obviously, you're such a bloody fanboy. Really? Let me see. Years, I hope so. Let me see if um, I can find when his birthday is. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, he's God, really. 19. I was a 1944. I was a couple of weeks oh. after um, in '87. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's close, mate. It's close. I just want you to get his 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 haircut. I just think his his that booth of white hair is like savage. I think that's awesome. You know what I mean? That's like probably. <laughs> Probably 80, <laughs> no, 89, 89, I think it is, isn't it? 89? Ah, good yeah, no, 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 no. You were, you were well into investing by that stage, Phil. You would have been, what, a couple of years old? You would have already been putting money on the stock market. Uh, oh, just kind of cash flow. Yeah, of course, just the, just the real simple stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, look, um, Peter Lynch, for anyone that's interested, and we've actually referenced one up in Wall Street, and we did a, we've done a really good podcast on them. Um, uh, great, great books to read for investing, um, and that's one that's just very. I think at the time, even I remember you saying, Phil, it's a very um, easily understood and digestible book. Like just the writing style is a lot easier than some of them. It's not that impenetrable. So he's definitely one to look out for. And that book is absolutely one to one to listen to or read. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So uh, your turn, B Diddy. All right, uh, this one's um, this one's good and topical. Uh, Jim Cramer. Uh, Jim oh, yeah. Cramer, Mad Money. Yes. Uh, far out. He's a fascinating guy. So there's, there's plenty of different sides to this guy. He, um, you know, he used to work in, in Goldham Sachs back in the 80s, I think it was. Yeah. Um, I think he, he was a stockbroker or something. He wasn't managing funds at that point. Um, but <laughs> this always sticks out because it, it separates the wealthy from everyone else. He started his own hedge fund. And raised four hundred and fifty million dollars with five million dollar buy-in. So he's gone to his friends and family and network and raised four hundred and fifty million dollars wow. to put a hedge fund. 
I'm like, wow. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, that's, that's insane. awesome, isn't it? Like, just have the balls to do that. Like, do you know what just I mean? Have, just to have, have the shapats to, yeah, well, <laughs> but so, because he, like, just, just going back slightly with, with him. So obviously he was involved with Goldman Sachs. He, uh, he would have been dealing with lots of people. There would have been lots of money. But even with that, like, well, I wonder what, like, what's his, what's his sort of background? I'm just looking. So he, he went to Harvard. So I suppose he's always probably been pretty, a pretty high achiever. Um, yeah, like his, his, okay, so his, his dad owned international packaging products. Okay. So he, he was sort of from big money. I, I was just sort of interested to see what his background was because, you know, that kind of tells you a little bit about it. But um, still, yeah. like, you need balls to go <laughs> Like even now, imagine imagine me and you creating a hedge fund and raising four hundred fifty million dollars. We should do it with our listeners. If you and can all listeners, if anybody, yeah, <laughs> we're just going to set up. We're not asking for five million. That's a bit excessive. We'll take like a million. We we'll even take five hundred thousand. Like that's a low. We probably couldn't goal. even raise enough money to buy the paper to do the <laughs> admin. <laughs> Don't 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 dis don't disparage our great listeners. They've got um lots of money. So <laughs> so he, he really interesting that. Like that that's that's a big play. Uh, no, and that, it pulled off. He claims to have sold all the stocks before Black Monday. On the Friday <laughs> before Black Monday, which I don't know. For some reason nothing's verified. Really? I sold my stocks before this day. I've yeah, right. about in the market by this percent. Um my question is, how is this unverified? Doesn't a hedge fund still have to report in some capacity? Yeah, that's right. That's bizarre. Have a look, but yeah, claims to have sold all his stock the Friday before Black Monday night. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And look, you know, this is the thing with this with this sort of guy. Like, he's this is he is a bit of a myth. I mean, if you've ever seen Mad Money, um, I don't know if it's still going, but I've watched a couple of the Mad Money's, and he's just bizarre. You know, he. He, at first, I was thinking, "Who's this buffoon?" But you know, you realise he knows what he's talking about. But it's still all the wet, the, the, the whistles and bells. But he, he's made it hugely popular. He's made investing again. Here's another guy that's actually made investing very accessible. You know, he's not playing in that upper echelons of things. Even though he's got a lot of money, I assume, or they probably wouldn't know it, but he said he did. But um, you know, he's through mad money, he's he's created an entertainment out of investing that wasn't there before. Now you could question whether that's good or bad because he has a lot of influence and you know can make decisions and can say things that can affect companies. But um, mad money is a hugely popular program. So yeah, this guy's. I, I mean, I've, I don't know that much about it, but I'm just reading through some stuff. I'm like, wow, we'll, yeah. We'll run through the stats to give people an idea of what he what he's claiming. I guess. Mm. So eighty eight to two thousand, he reckons he had one year only of negative returns. Yeah. So you think in that time period we're we're getting close to that dot com area, um, the bubble recessions in the nineties, eighty seven. Um, uh, what was it? The underperformance. It was nineteen ninety eight um, that has underperformed. Uh, in ninety nine, the fund returned forty seven percent, and in two thousand, it returned twenty eight percent beating the S&P 500 by 38% because it went down. So somehow he made money during the dot-com bust. Um, but who, who are we to question this guy's uh, percentage returns? Um, no, because no one else seems to be able to for some reason because there's no evidence of any of it. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's, it, look at this. It's, he self-reported a 36% return in 2000. Self-reported. 
That's he's amazing. In 12 years, he's only had one negative year. Um, and it's the weirdest year, like 98, I think the market went up. Um, and he's went down. Incredible. Uh, so, yeah, so very fascinating guy. The, the, uh, the other thing, sorry, Phil, I was just going to say that I really like about what he's done. And, um, you know, you, you spoke before when you were running the day trading uh, webinar that just happened. Um, you were talking about, um, again, this would be me, I'll get this completely wrong, but um, it's diverse, diversifying within the same asset class, but in a lot of different ways. I think isn't that right? Isn't that what you were talking about when you talked about like Gordon Ramsay, giving an example of Gordon Ramsay and of uh, Robert Kiyosaki? Yeah, so it's about diversifying income streams more so. Yeah, yes. Sorry, yeah, to go back. Yeah, sorry, that's worth saying. Yeah, yeah. And that's absolutely... Sold for, he sold that for a few million, I think. Which, um, the street.com, was it, or smart He's got mad money. He's got, I've got a heap of his books here. Yep. Um, yeah, so he's got all these income streams through one, yeah, one area of specialty. And that's and that's the the zenith. So what he's done is he, you know, he's saying he made all this money. I'm, I'm sure he did. I mean, there's no reason to doubt it. Um, I think he 2001 he retired from managing that that hedge fund. Um, but yeah, what he does now is yeah, he's got um, he's he's an editor of a smart money magazine. Um, although they were accused of unethical practices, um, he he oh, that was following him everywhere. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, he launched thestreet.com, which was a financial website. Was that the blog you were talking about? The yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thestreet.com. Yeah. And he sold that. Um, he's a guest presenter on CNBC. He obviously has Mad Money, which is his own show, and then he does lots of it. He's on. I think he does his radio show, which is Jim Cramer's Real Money, um, which I think has finished. Um, and um, yeah, he he has this sort of long list of appearing on shows so he's a sort of a celebrity investor in a way you know that's i suppose that's one thing for me with with them you know i do you mention things sort of follow him around and i know he's a 60 minutes show um <laughs> sort of all, all you know all, all about him um and yeah you know yeah i'd sort of question you know some of the things he's been involved in i know um uh, john oh what's his name he used to do a show on comedy central uh, the comedian guy who did this sort of new show. Um, I've blanked. I'm, I'll come back to me when all this is finished. But yeah, a couple of people have picked up on the fact that, you know, this guy actually, is he really is he really getting it right and does he know what he's talking about? Um, that's always followed him around. But I have to say, as an individual, he's clearly willing to take a chance. Um, and he did when he set up the hedge fund. Um, and he's created all these media outlets and he's, he's now a celebrity. And yeah, I mean, that alone can can ensure that he's sort of um, able to generate. Books are definitely worth reading. Are they? Uh, okay. Yeah. You've got to be able to take them uh, with a grain of salt. And like there's some, one, one thing that I remember from when it was how to invest in retail stocks. And he said, you want to invest in retail stocks as they're rapidly opening new stores everywhere. He said, you, you generally don't want to invest in them once they're open and trying to grow sales. He said, you've missed too much of the growth part. You want to get them as they're looking to rapidly expand. Um, and then that's that's where you're going to make most of your money. So mixing those two things together, when you're talking about Peter Lynch, if you're seeing you know retail stores pop up everywhere, mm. um, in different work fields, it's probably worth jumping on and then um, allocating a small percentage to that um, to that investment, and then getting out once they're sort of established. Because um, you know JB Hi-Fi'd be a great example here in Australia. Imagine investing in that as they're growing their locations um, down at like five six bucks a share. 
Yeah, sure. Whereas now it's a lot more, um, you know, a lot more volatility. Um, the retail sector is always kind of getting getting flogged. Um, so yeah, his books are definitely worth um, getting into because there's some nuggets of gold in there, nuggets of investing gold. Yeah, interesting. No, that's good to hear. And again, it's interesting, you know, these guys that we're quoting, they're people that have books out, they've got information out. So the whole point of this podcast is to kind of say there are these people that are worth looking at. You know, are they beating the market? Yeah, absolutely. And we're demonstrating that they are. Um, but what helps is there's access to all of the information and that they, they have. Um, and um, through that, you can learn what they're doing. Uh, and it's interesting, we're sort of seeing it well. For the first two, there's, there's a bit of a pattern there in terms of how they approach investing, um, which is slightly different to maybe a lot of people think, oh, if you're an investor, you have to have all these things and all this knowledge and all this inside knowledge. No, you don't. You've actually, you, what's in front of you is enough to get you started thinking about how to invest. So, yeah, no, that's that's a really good one. Um, right, next one's mine. <laughs> Here you go. Here you go. Uh, okay. This one's going to be a bit controversial. Um, technically, he did beat the market, um, but he really didn't. But uh, still, it's worth throwing these ones in. Um, Bernie Madoff. <laughs> so, well, Bernie. Okay, so Bernie Madoff. I mean, he's if you know, if you, you I'm sure most people have heard of uh, of Bernie Madoff. Um, he created the world's largest Ponzi scheme. Um, but he actually has quite a long history of being an investor before he, he, he sort of started doing incredibly dodgy things. I think he always had a whiff of dodginess about him, let's be honest. Um, but yeah, his, again, his dad was a stockbroker, so he sort of had it in the family. Um, he set up a penny stock uh, brokerage back in 1960 with, um, he had like a couple of thousand dollars himself, and then I think his dad sort of put in a certain amount of money, and that sort of pretty much grew quite well. It relied a lot on sort of family and friends. Um, but then, uh, sort of as time went on, um, Bernie um, decided to. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, that that firm was actually one of the one of the big firms on Wall Street. So this guy knew what he was talking about, um, but decided to go a little bit uh, a little bit funky, a little bit dodgy, um, and started to, in effect, create what what he admitted Bernie admitted was a was a was it was a Ponzi scheme. So. Um, that my interpretation of a Ponzi scheme, and I might be wrong, it's a bit like multi-level marketing where everyone puts money in relying on someone else to put money in. Um, and all of this is based on nothing. There's no background for this. There's no reason for the money to go off. Uh, and basically, bills are bills are bills. And in the end, um, it, it's quite incredible. I mean, we talk about figures of money. It's estimated there was about $62 billion uh, <laughs> is, is what Bernie managed to get out. So, I mean, technically, you could say that's beating the market. Um, but look, Clearly, you know, this is a guy, this is a bit of an outlier, I'm just throwing it in there. Um, you know, what this guy did was 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 wholly um, illegal. And if you've ever seen the likes of Boiler Room um, or uh, Wolf on Wall Street, you'll get a sense of what these guys are doing. And, in, you know, in a lot of cases, he relied uh, on, to get that amount of money, he was relying a lot on moms and pops and you know, people that were putting their, their life savings and things like that into, into, into investing. So I'm not saying do it, but I'm just saying we're talking about people that beat the market. I thought I'd throw throw that one in, Phil, just as a bit of a bit of an, bit of an outlier. <laughs> we better turn this podcast around. We've got some too dodgy, dodgy recommendations. No, we're, we're, we're going to be called out on this one, I'm sure. <laughs> so, yeah, so he, he actually, and this is the thing that's really interesting. He actually ran... Um, 
he ran the uh, so he, he ran his his penny stock company as a sole um, proprietorship. Um, so it wasn't actually incorporated until 2001 as a limited liability company. So I just, you know, that to me, sorry, just as a complete random, you're putting all the kind of liabilities and stuff into you. I think this guy's another one of these people who just had balls of steel. And clearly what he was doing was wrong and illegal. But, um, you know, I think he probably didn't care to some degree. He's probably a bit like what Jordan Belford used to be like, but obviously Bernie Madoff is a lot, is a lot worse. Uh, although people, some people wouldn't say that because they lost a lot of money with Jordan Belford, but um, yeah, he's that sort of guy. I think he was, you know, Shapatsi. Uh, he had a lot of, you know, a lot of a lot of faith in himself and in and in what he was doing, and probably didn't care too much about who he hurt. But technically, yeah, he actually did end up beating the market. Although, of course, I think he's probably gotten most of that taken off now. And um, he was released from prison on um, what do they call it? Like you know, humanitarian grounds, and I believe he's dead now. Uh, I could be wrong. Oh, don't quote me on that. Just in case that is wrong. Um, so uh, yeah, he 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 has a, he's a very worth just reading. He's no books. This guy doesn't have books. Um, that I'm oh, aware. There's lots of books on him. But um, he wasted time in prison. What's this? He wasted his time in prison if he didn't get a book out. Yeah, no, I know. When you just get a ghostwriter. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. I'm with you, man. Um, yeah. So no, he. Um, yeah, look, he's he is not one that we recommend following. But you know, if we're talking about people that beat the market, like you know, let's let's to the front of he, he he sort of did. But what's forgotten about Bernie Madoff is the fact that he did actually have a successful, very successful business, penny stock trading, um, which um, ran for for uh, I think it's about 30, 30, 35 years, a very long time. Um, and you know, he actually did have that knowledge and that ability, but he just decided to use it for uh, very, very nefarious means. Um, so yeah. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that one as a as a complete sort of outside. My next one will be a little bit more normal, but I just thought I'd put that one in. Uh, any comments on Bernie? Fantastic. Um, you know that next. <laughs> <laughs> you so oh, I love it. You're so sweet. All right, you do the next one. All right, next one I've got uh, is a guy called Sir John Templeton. Uh, Ooh, old school hello. guy. Yeah. He, uh, he, he comes under the Benjamin Graham School of Investing. Ah, okay. That's yeah. what Buffett, um, Buffett did. Uh, <laughs> this is another guy with a, a set of balls. Uh, his investment Maybe that's the link, yeah. I don't know. During the Depression of the 1930s, he rang his broker and told him to buy 100 shares of everything on the New York Stock Exchange that was selling for less than a dollar. Oh, my God. Wow. Imagine doing that now. He just cleaned up. He cleaned oh, up after amazing. all when they all went up. That's amazing. That's a very... Could you do that now, actually, like in a, in a smaller scale? You probably yeah, could. Well, yeah, I'd imagine. So you could stretch it out to 10 bucks or something you, you yeah there's a few more stocks there right. um but yeah having said that not to undermine the guy he was a, a cfa which is a um chartered financial analyst uh one of the hardest courses and programs to do um some of the questions you get asked in that exam is intense i think their fail rate of that exam is huge as well um so getting to that level and being able to analyze stocks so I assume he's probably pulled out his calculators and I was going to say spreadsheets, but I don't know if spreadsheets are wrong. <laughs> oh, no, they were, mate. They just would have been written down, yeah. <laughs> it was a, a, a written version of Excel. So how much um, how much was he worth? What was his net worth? 
Well, he went on, like his, his market return was about, I think, 14% a year over 40 years, uh, which is okay. massive um, over that period. A lot of time, like, yeah. Okay. I think yeah. we're getting like a 20-year time frame. This guy's doubled that and still maintained 14%. Uh, he actually was a pioneer for mutual funds, and that's where he made a lot of his money. Yeah, that's where okay. he went to billionaire status. Interesting. Um, mutual funds. So there's kind of two lives to him. He's, he's got that uh, investor life, um, but also that mutual fund going into that business kind of area. Right. Um, yeah, very much from that uh, school of investing. And it was all about, you know, that whole removing your emotion from investing and, and buying into the company. And um, yeah, j- just, I've got, I've got five, um, this is a cool website. It's got five um, maxims, maxims of John Templeton. Here so, we go. Love it. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get hammered with a whole heap of knowledge. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go through. Yeah, do. Uh, for all long-term investors, there is only one objective: maximum total return after tax. Bang, 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 bang. Uh, seems Love obvious. <laughs> I don't know if that was groundbreaking in the 30s, but certainly it might have been. People would be like, after uh, tax, people pay tax. Yeah, it might have been. <laughs> Achieving a good record takes much study and work, and is a lot harder than most people think. That's true. A lot of people need to hear that. Yeah, the study true. that goes like that. into the stock is, um, yeah, insane. And then the emotional side after that's crazy. It is impossible to produce a superior performance unless you do something different from the majority. Oh, watch out. Nice. So say that one again just so everyone hears that one. That's a nice one. It is impossible to produce a superior performance unless you mm. do something different from the majority. Yeah, very and good. So- you talk about that in investing. That's a good one. I think he's telling us to buy Afterpay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Today well, you can buy it, but tomorrow it might, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> this, All right, this, this, yeah, go on. Yeah, no, so you go through the two more and I'll just say something. Else. Massive lifting. Um, the time of maximum pessimism is the best time to buy and the time of maximum optimism is the best time to sell. Sounds like Buffett stole that. Yeah, Buffett is wrong. <laughs> Classic Buffett they, doesn't give a fuck. I think he's too stole everything from bloody Benjamin Graham anyway. Well, he, he did, and at least he sort of admits it, I think. But yes, no, absolutely. Um, he's made it sound a bit sexier, uh, but yes, same same idea. Um, and what do we got here? Let's go. If a particular industry or type of security becomes popular with investors, that popularity will always prove temporary and when lost, won't return for many years. Hmm. Yeah, okay. There's like 22 of them. I might just do a whole podcast on that. I, that we should do one on that. It's, it's interesting. Some of those are very time relevant. Um, but actually, a lot of, yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, the couple you read out there, I thought, yeah, there's some, there's some real value in that. Um, and the thing is that these are, what, uh, 60, 70 years old at least, and they're still relevant today. Yeah, I know. Um, well, doesn't it show as well just the fact that the stock market fundamentally hasn't changed? It still runs in the... What's happened is it's gotten quicker and it's gotten more predictable, but the fundamental basis of how it operates is exactly the same as it was when it started. And I think some people forget that. With technology, we're guilty of thinking things are different. No, it's not. Technology doesn't change things. It just adds another layer of how you operate. Um, you know, and yeah, so what he's saying is relevant because... The stock market operates. The idea of, you know, it's exactly what Buffett says, what every second Instagram post now has that quote about, you know, be greedy when others are fearful. 
um, because it's it's that just makes sense in how the stock market operates. So that's that's actually that's pretty cool. And um, does he have any books or any podcasts or anything out that we can um, we can recommend to the people to listen to or read? Uh, I, I don't know if he does have a book actually. Ah, oh, he doesn't have a book, mate. I don't know. He shouldn't be on the list. Why two thousand and eight? <laughs> right in the middle of GFC. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Um, no, the interesting one. I like that. That's old school. That's very old school. All right, very good. Okay, my next one, um, and I'll do this one, and then you do one more, probably, and then we'll uh, we'll, we'll tie it up. But my next one is the man you want to marry, um, your your friend, your confidant, um, your mentor, your guru, Peter Andreas Thiel, uh, <laughs> who Phil will always reference. What? Why is he? Why is he my mentor? He's everything to you, Phil. You always talk about Peter Thiel. You love the guy. You always <laughs> go on about how he's... And he looks younger than he did back in the PayPal days. This is all the stuff I hear from you, man. Listen, don't be getting all shy about it. Don't be getting coy with me about it now. <laughs> so Peter Thiel, um, for anyone that doesn't know, we have referenced him quite a bit. He's a modern guru of investing. And more than that, he's a very interesting business guy. He's just a really interesting guy to learn about. So he was actually born in Germany, but ended up in the US. He um, he ended up um, in setting up uh, PayPal or, or being part of a group that set up PayPal uh, and built the company up, the company up um, before it was sold to eBay. I think he was the chief financial officer. And um, what I hadn't realized actually, Phil, was um, because obviously Elon Musk is synonymous with PayPal, but Elon Musk actually um, didn't set up PayPal per se. PayPal actually bought Elon Musk's company over yeah, um, it merged yeah. that's right yeah so um so he helped sort of work on that early days and um, built that up and um, like i said um it ended up being sold to ebay in 2002 for um so sorry it was only founded in 1999 and then it was, it was sold in 2002 to ebay for 1.5 billion and now of that i think he had about a three percent stake and he got about 55 million out of that what he did with that money was use it very sensibly um so a couple of things. He actually set up a a hedge fund. This is this is maybe another trait of these people. You know, they've got this sort of you know hedge funds are the way to go. Phil, we we did a really good podcast on hedge funds, and yeah, I mean they are a way to generate money. Um, so he he set up a hedge fund. He also set up um, Palantir Technologies, which is a big data analysis company. It was one of the ones we had last year on, and they were supposed to be um, going public this year. Um, and I believe it's not happening for obvious reasons, but it's one to watch out for because big data is is such a big thing. Um, and so um, through that, he was able to obviously build up a lot of money. But what he did and what he's probably most famous for is he was the first outside investor into Facebook. And um, this is 2004. So if you think 2004, I was in uni. Phil, you were probably the same. Um, I think I, I, mean, I, I knew about possible. Facebook. Was I this? still wanted the baby. You're a baby. Oh, yeah, you're only like 10 years old. I forget that. Me. You've got a lot deeper voice. Sorry, that's true. Um, yeah, 2004. <laughs> um, I, I think MySpace was, was king in 2004. So um, anyway, bought in 10.2% um, stake for $500,000. So... Made fifty-five million um, from PayPal. What a deal! You know, what a <laughs> listen! What a deal! What it turned into was was incredible. So you know, left PayPal, not bad. I mean, after what nine? After three years, you know, the, the, the company sold for one point five million. It makes fifty-five million. You'd be pretty happy with that. But where he made his big big money was Facebook. So he invested in two thousand and four. Now he didn't sell it until two thousand and twelve. But he sold the majority of the shares for one billion dollars. One billion dollars. Just think of that. So 500,000 
to one billion. Um, incredible turnaround. I think if we talk about luck, um, you know, I, I've no doubt, um, you know, I might talk briefly about his, he's made a couple of very good bets uh, or, you know, good, good, good um, trades. But, you know, I think that's only luck. No one would have known then what Facebook was going to become. But still, you know, he benefited from that. He was willing to, um, you know, make that call, make that trade, and he did. Um, so he he took out um, a billion from that in 2012, which obviously launched him. But but even during that, he still had um, Clarion Capital, which is his his hedge fund. Um, and he did actually he 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 had a very good uh, a very good run with with Clarion Capital. Um, so he used a certain yeah certain amount of money from the sale of PayPal um, to get into that. But what he did is he actually in 2003 bet that the United States dollar would weaken. And put quite a significant amount of money, and that turned out to be correct, and he came out quite well. And that he also, I wouldn't say he predicted the dot com bubble, but he could see that it was happening, um, and what was happening with the general financial sector at that time. Um, so, um, two thousand and five, we have Clarion seeing a fifty seven point one percent return, which is um, pretty savage. But then in two thousand and six, a seven point eight percent loss. So, you know, a little bit up and down, but but overall, I'm just trying to see if there's any figures on his kind of annualized returns. Can't see anything offhand. And um, the big thing for me about this guy is he's got an ability to understand uh, businesses. So you know we've got someone that built up a successful business in three years, hugely successful business, world-changing business, which is PayPal. And um, he gets into the hedge fund area, and that's running successfully. He also invests. This is 2003. He creates this big data analysis company, which big data at the time was unheard of. He's, I think he's someone that can see things, you know, see, see the vision of what's going to happen. I mean, again, PayPal, who would have thought anything like PayPal would have existed in 1999? Um, and then Facebook, he also maybe saw, so maybe I'm wrong in saying he was lucky, you know, he saw this opportunity in Facebook and he saw what Facebook could become. He's, he's a bit of a soothsayer, I think. Um, for me, yeah, he's, he's, for anyone just interested in business and, in, you know, mindset and things like that, he's, he is one to follow. Um, his success is across multiple fields, multiple multiple areas, and he's worked in multiple different parts of businesses. Um, so for me, he, he would have to be one of the top uh, investors only because he has this other strand of incredibly successful businesses. Yeah, he's absolutely gunned picking, um, particularly those startups, having a knack for analysing that and, and just business potential. And and that, that's no different to picking stocks. I mean, we, we've when we pick stocks, we've got to take on that approach like we're a Shark Tank investor. We've got to analyze the business model and the people behind it. It doesn't matter whether you're a seed funder in Facebook or you're looking to add to your portfolio. Um, that, yeah, that, that's a mentality you need to take. 100%. 100%. And he lives that and he does it. So for me, you know, he, he's beaten the market in every sense of what he's done. And there isn't many people that can do that. And yes, Phil, he does look younger now than he did in those I believe it's hair plugs and plastic surgery, but, but I don't know. <laughs> Him and Elon Musk look, are weirdly, they're Benjamin Buttons. They both look a lot younger. If you ever look at photos of them back in the day. Oh, well, Elon Musk is hair plugs, but still. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so look, he's up there. Um, he does have books out, um, and I've seen some of the stuff he's done, but do you have any, do you know offhand, Bill? We might look into that and maybe just put a comment if we don't it's have it on hand. Right one. Zero to one. Zero to one. And the diversity myth. Sorry, they're the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zero to one's about actually creating a business that's disrupting. Like it's a buzzword at the moment with startups and they talk about disruptions when it's actually something already exists. They're just doing it in a different way. But he talks about something that actually changes 
um, you know, what's happening around the world or improves it or, yeah, changes it up. Sure. Great awesome. reading for a startup or, or a business that you're looking to grow. Sweet. Um, great tip. Another one with a great book. So, um, Phil, why don't you maybe do one more and then we'll kind of try and pick through all the various people uh, and figure out if there's any traits that we can kind of, um, that are similar. Yeah, so this guy's um, name is Philip Fisher, um, one of the guys that Buffett uh, loves, uh, one of the few people that he'd actually trust his money with, he believes. And, and what this guy is, he's very, he fits into that different kind of mold of person, like his beliefs are very different. Um, so he's very much uh, about extensive research into a company. So he focuses on uh, growth companies, and particularly small cap. And he, he, he does extensive research and does research into the research and development and their sales mainly. So he's not looking at some of the uh, key indicators, um, you know, that a, a typical value investor might look for. Um, he's going deep into, I guess, the potential um, of, of what a company can do. And this is where this is where he'd make sense of, you know, how Netflix have been, well, used to be unprofitable, but their stock went up you know, thousand percent or whatever it is. Yeah. It's about the key criteria of, you know, the customer acquisition. What's the future value of the customer? What's that sales growth look like now, but in the future and bringing that into um, an investable business in sort of today's terms. Awesome. So he's one of the first ones to pioneer that. And he's got uh, his book, um, Uncommon Profits. Uh, fuck, what's that called? Um, something around there. If you type in Phil Fisher book, it'll come up and he actually lists the 15 things that he looks for um, when investing in a stock. So he goes through different price ratios, sales ratios, what he expects of management, um, what experience to look for. Um, yeah, whole range of different stuff. And he's, uh, he's a bit different too with his, with his thinking. So, um, you know, he's not, not huge on diversification. Um, you know, he talks about, uh, certainly not ho holding a, an index fund or ETF where there's, you know, 200-odd stocks. Um, right. He's not not focused uh, on that. Um, he's, he talks about not getting too specific on the price. Um, so, you know, again, we, we obsess on the price of the stock. And he says, you know, if you're buying for the long term and, um, and you're only a small investor, he's like the, the little part doesn't matter like the little percentages, if, if it's a good company that's going to grow, whether you get in a dollar ten a share, dollar forty a share, if it's a company that's going to grow, that's, that's not going to matter as much as trying to wait for that ultimate timing. And which is really interesting because that's what Buffett actually did with um, Coca-Cola. Like, again, there's so much that, that's um, said about Buffett, but what he actually does is quite different. They, they overpaid. Coca-Cola was overvalued when they bought it using his metrics and analysis that he does. Oh, yeah. But it was Charlie Munger that said it's worth paying a premium for these good companies. Yes. Um, I think that's where this kind of fits into that mould um, about paying that premium for companies that you just know are going to grow or know that are going to expand really, uh, really well. Yeah, interesting because just as you're describing um, his sort of methodology, yeah, I was thinking Warren Buffett. I mean, it's, it's, exactly, it's exactly that sort of idea. Um, and yeah, interesting. Yeah, so just sorry in terms of timing, just go back. You may have said it, but what's his time? What's what's his era in comparison to say say Buffett and Charlie Munger? Um, I, I don't think he was too different. I think it was around the sixties. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. and did he come up under Benjamin Graham as well, or up somewhere else? Uh, I'm not sure he did. I think he came up like kind of left field. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, Benjamin Graham. 
Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Because yeah, it just sounds quite similar to sort of the, the buffer angle. So yeah, that's why I was sort of wondering if there's a connection there. Yeah. Um, our common stock and uncommon uh, profits uh, is his book. That Sweet. Okay. Another book. It. Excellent. No, that's um, good. Yeah, Buffett actually recommends people read that. So. Oh, okay. Well, that's a pretty good recommendation. Um, Nineteen fifty-eight. Okay, so around the same time, actually. Yeah. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. So um, let's try and <laughs> summarize everything we just <laughs> talked about. So yes, firstly, um, there are people that do beat the market, and there's people that beat the market consistently. I mean, look, we our teaching aims to beat the market. Um, and what we consider beating the market is beating the average returns from for the main um, indexes of the main, the main markets. Uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's people out there that have done incredibly successfully. I think what you see with people we're talking about was definitely, you know, the, the, what we're talking about is obviously very high level. We're talking about billionaires here. These guys take risks and they take risks at a level that most people wouldn't ever, ever dream of taking risks at. Uh, Jim Cramer being a great example. I mean, you know, yeah. 450 million hedge fund wow. Um, so that's the first thing for me, Phil, is is all the, a lot of these people do take risks, whether good or bad. Yeah. Um, the next one for me is, uh, in general, it's not across the board in all of them, but I, I think the really interesting thing is you have these successful investors that say you don't need to technically know, you know, be, be technically uh, on top or that's not the word I'm looking for. You don't need, you know, you don't need to have lots of software and, and a Harvard education to invest. Um, yeah. Actually, the best investors can be the people that just know and understand companies and businesses and how they work. And the way to do that is by trying the product. It's something Phil says all the time. Know your market, know yourself and, and know your stock. Um, you know, know the stock you're operating in, know the business, understand how it works. How does Apple work? What are they relying on? You know, where are their sales coming from? What's likely to change? And that's easy to find out. You just type Apple News into the into Google and it'll it'll give you all that information there. And um, so that, that's the second thing for me. Um, and probably I can't think of a third thing offhand, but Phil, what, what else would you sort of pick up on from those people? My, my biggest takeaway from all of this is is that they invested a business. Don't forget at the end of the day, people, you know, they get caught up in, in the price, they get caught up in what the market's doing. You've got to strip that away and look at the actual business that you're um, buying into and, and seeing if that business makes sense. Does that business model make sense? Because, you know, Peter Thiel with investing that seed funding in Facebook, um, you know, considered risky because there was a few people that knocked him back before that. But he's able to envision this social media platform that, that was, you know, was going to work. And even Philip Fisher was all about investing in, in a business looking at a company's sales and their research and development and their their team um you know very rarely are these guys you know apart from um you know buffett and that they do do it to a certain extent but they don't go jump into the numbers straight away the first thing they do all right does this business make sense uh will it make sense in the immediate future and will it make sense in the next 10 to 15 years time and then they'll dive in to have a look at the numbers Awesome. Yeah, that's really, really sage advice. Um, and something that's interesting, you know, you, you always you do learn. There's always things to learn from people that are successful. Uh, and there's things to learn not to do and things to learn to do. But look, um, that was a nice little summary, actually, Phil. Um, Dabby, you've taken my summary now. Um, so literally, I just agree with what Phil said. And I think um, for anyone interested, check out those books um, that we've sort of talked about. 
really worth reading a couple of them um really interesting and it gives you that kind of mindset because a lot of this is about mindset um and as always uh i suppose sorry, sorry phil before i do my, my my outro do you want to um have any further comments or any final comments or have you literally spent all your energy on that last Absolutely. No, I didn't even take a breath. That was just everything I've got. That was savage, that, man. That was 17 minutes of non-stop chat. Unbelievable. Yeah, no, that, that's all I know. You're on your own now. Oh, damn it. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm going to finish with the really mundane stuff. Now, thank you all for listening as always. Um, we've seen the numbers go up as of recently and we're absolutely delighted with that. Hopefully it means we're reaching out to new people. So thank you. Please continue to listen and it helps us and hopefully we'll be able to help you. Don't forget we're on Facebook. Facebook.com, Cheeky Investor, forward slash Cheeky Investor. Um, we've also got a website, CheekyInvestor.com. What I'd say is if you've got any questions around anything we're talking about or investing, hop on there. Phil is generally around. We've got a group of people around to help out. We can answer questions. We're happy to do that. You know, there's no cost for that. It's just that's because you know, we love talking about investing and trading and we love getting into that. So hop on our Facebook page, like the page, get in and ask any questions. And yeah, you'll, you'll definitely get some help. And as always, um, thank you for listening again and hopefully we'll uh, catch you next week.